Hello, Internet, and welcome back to the podcast called Hey Retriever. Uh, regrettably, today, I do not have Matt Richmond with me. Um, Dane will take something Matt has said and put it right here. Hi, welcome to Hey Retriever, a podcast. Awesome. Thank you for your contribution, Matt. I appreciate your insights, as usual. Uh, I have the wonderful privilege, and I'm going to jump straight into it today, uh, of, of having a, a fantastic creator and a person with whom I've worked not enough in my life, uh, Alex Quinnell. And uh, I want to jump right in because I have a million questions, Alex. First off, how are you today, this evening? I'm, I'm good, thank you. I'm sitting in London where it is cold and miserable, but I'm good. It went straight from hot to cold. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this was a strange summer for London, very hot. It, it was incredibly hot. Now it's very cold and everybody's complaining about heating bills because of the, the European situation. But we're good, you know. We, we, we got through the, the funeral and um, we're in kind of a bit of political turmoil, but we're British, so we just carry on and drink tea and smile occasionally. It's interesting. The last time we worked together, uh, there was turmoil as well, of course, the hinge of Brexit. Uh, happening right as we moved to our interaction in Marseille. Um, it sounds like not a whole lot has changed, minus a pandemic. The whole pandemic fit itself in between our last two conversations. And now. <laughs> now here we are. Indeed. Uh, so, Alex, I, I know you as, as a location fixer, but I know that you are so much more than that. There's Alex, the creative director. There's Alex, the creator. There's Alex, the producer, the executive producer, the location fixer. Which hat do you prefer to go by? Oh, God. Um, I don't know. I, I always have a problem when people say, hi, what do you do? And I never, I always pause because I never really know how to say what I do, which leads people to believe is kind of gives quite a flaky flaky impression as I don't know I, I I just like making things I guess I like kind of sorting things out and making things and having a product at the end I, I'm not very good at, at keeping doing one thing um, I do a lot of things mediocrely if that's a word I mean I do a lot of different things um, but I, I guess creator is something I would be uh, flattered to be known as <laughs> In some way, I think there's a beauty to doing many things. I think what we were raised, at least for me especially, I was raised with this constant mantra of the jack of all trades, master of none. But I, I would rather be the jack of all trades than the master of one. I think there's a much more interesting life to be had when you kind of get to experience all of the pieces of the puzzle instead of just the one meticulous tiny thing that maybe you perfect over 70 years of a life cycle. Mm. Um, I think you're right. I I, I think it's really interesting to be able to bring lots of different things together. Um, I had a brief moment, as you mentioned, as a creative director of an agency. I ran an advertising agency, which was entirely self-created as, as an idea because most creative directors have been doing it for years and go to art school. And I just said, well, I'm a creative director. And we went from there. But what was fun about it was, was being able to to reach out to lots of different people and lots of different professions. And that was the kind of the idea behind the agency was like, instead of staying within your little silo, was saying, you know what, let, let's go to graphic artists and let's go to musicians and let's go to sculptors and let's 
go to people who aren't necessarily creative at all, but are impacted by whatever the, the, the sphere is that we're working in. And let's find out what they think and let's find out what they can bring to it. Um, I think advertising can be terribly self-referential. And I think what's interesting is, is to, to open that up a bit. It's, I think as you, as you say that, I think about the result of advertising efforts versus the process of advertising. And there's two very different experiences, right? Like my grandmother's experience of advertising is what she's given on a television screen or on her mobile. Whereas we live in a world that unfortunately is oftentimes fed through advertisements, you know, through advertising work. But that is a huge labyrinth of different paths you can take in that process and different ways to work. Uh, which which agency are you referencing? Well, it was an agency. I started two agencies in Paris. One was called uh, Jacques, and the other one was called uh, the Mind Collective. Which the Mind Collective is what I recall from our conversations, walking through uh, the the vineyard, um, mm. talking about that. And what I mean, you 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 mentioned here. You know, now I'm a creative director. Here we are, uh, and. and looking at other traditional paths that people take to get to that, that role, what was that jumping point for you? What was the moment where you said, I can do this, and that's, here we are? I don't think I was ever quite that presumptuous, but I thought, well, I can try. And it was, it was I found myself living in France. I couldn't really do what I was doing before because I didn't have the connections. But I teamed up with a Spanish guy who was a uh, kind of business development and he worked in marketing. And he had a company in Spain that did similar kind of thing, to, but basically a design company. And we said, you know what, let's set ourselves up as an ad agency or, or a digital ad agency or a digital strategy agency and just go, go and see people, go and see clients and see what their problems are and see if we can come up with solutions. And because we were an Englishman and a Spaniard going to see French people, they were like, oh, oh, that's kind of interesting. Oh, maybe we should see these people. Maybe they have something to tell us. Because the French tend to be very insular, um, particularly against other French people, and particularly against other French people from a different social background. So to, to come in as, as foreigners kind of gave us a bit of, a, a bit of an edge. I think that's wonderful. What kind of work did that take you through? Oh, you really want to know? Well, we, we became specialists in... Our first client was um, Carrefour, big supermarket in France. And we won the, the account for their, for relaunching their, their baby brand and their kids brand. So for, from nothing, we became experts in, in diapers, baby food and diapers. And we would sit through meetings and talk about leakage and reassurance, which led us on what seemed to be quite naturally, into adult diapers, which was even, even more intense. And we cornered the market on, on diaper, diaper marketing in France for a while. I think, I think that's lovely. I think that the reality is these are still products and they have a use. And that's why I, I personally love, this is where Matt would be like a documentary, but I, I like commercial. I like advertising because it does, it does serve a greater need and, and you have the ability to position product for people. You want to believe that hopefully the companies are altruistic and, well, there's no such thing as an altruistic company. But, you know, that they're doing things in the right way. But I, I kind of go back to, because obviously I work with Nestle a lot, 
and Nestle has a lot of uh, categorical loves and hates around the world. Yeah. Um, and I like to believe that we can bring some small good to people's day through a dog food commercial. <laughs> Is it doing the same thing as, you know, telling a biopics documentary story? I don't know. Probably not. But it's fascinating. I, I think those stories are really interesting. So so from LaMind and, and working as a creative, you know, as a digital agency, you've got this other path of you too, which is this, this producer. You're a producer. You're traveling and you're, you're doing shoots, location shoots. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, that, that was kind of where I started. Um, I was incredibly lucky to start, to, much to the surprise of my children, that I started before the internet. So I started in working in advertising in England in the early 90s, when if you wanted to go and film somewhere, particularly abroad, you basically had to send somebody because you couldn't just tap in, I don't know, Egypt, filming in Egypt or Vietnam or China or wherever it was. You actually had to send somebody to, to deal with it on the ground and, and come back with pictures and meet people and, and organize it. And I love, that was, that was my love. Uh, that was my first love. And I was utterly addicted to it because there was a lot of money in advertising in those days. And I was getting on and off planes. I mean, I hate to think of my carbon footprint. Uh, luckily, in the, I mean, sadly, in those days, you didn't think about it. But I traveled all over the world uh, organizing shoots in, in kind of really weird and, and wacky places. And it was, it was very much, a lot of it was on the hoof. And you just turn up and you'd meet people and say, hi, you know, we want to do filming. And they go, what? Go, yeah, yeah, we want to do filming. <laughs> and I shot in, uh, we did, I organized the first uh, TV ad shot in North Vietnam, shot in Yemen, shot in Mali, shot all over South America, shot a lot in, in India, in slums, in Kenya, all over the place. And it was a ridiculous job. I mean, completely ridiculous job, but deeply addictive. For people who don't understand production, describe for me then that whole moment of walking up and saying, we'd like to film. I mean, what goes into that? Like, what are the logistics of, of filming in the 90s and, and the 2000s when you were starting into all this? Well, you would you'd go into the, agent, in the advertising agency and they would say, oh, we're thinking about shooting in a desert. And you go, okay, that's cool. What color desert would you like? And they go, well, you know, maybe red. So mountains or sand dunes? Uh, oh, you know, kind of sand dunes. And then I would go to a, literally go to a bookshop and look at travel books for, for pictures of deserts because, you know, there was no internet. So you, you'd look at travel books, you'd look at time life books or National Geographic and, and, and try and find the right kind of place. And then you would you get on a plane, I would get on a plane with a bunch of cash and a camera and try and make contact with a travel agent or a, a some kind of, I mean, there weren't really fixers in those days. So you'd, you'd try and hook up with the government or meet somebody who could organize it and, and find out who was responsible for that bit of desert and just, and just go and hang out and take photographs and talk to the people there and then say, okay, well, where, where are people going to stay? Where are going to be, um, well, you know, where are we going to park? Who's going to provide vehicles? Which is what led me into the kind of the production side, from from just the location scouting side. Over time, that methodology has has evolved, but is still largely the same. 
right? Now you've got different digital mediums that you use to research. What, so what is today's version of I Need a Red Desert? Well, now you just type in, you Google Red Desert, and you go, okay, well, where's, where can I film that, that has a red desert? Okay, I'm going to go to, I don't know, um, Jordan. You know, somewhere like Wadi Rum in Jordan. Beautiful, unbelievably beautiful place. Um, but there'll be a film fixer there who will go out in his car tomorrow and take photographs for you and email them back to you. Or he'll do you a lot, you know, he'll be doing it live while he's there. Whereas me, I would go for two weeks and come back with a big bag of 35 millimeter film that I shot and hope, my God, hope that they, they processed okay and that I hadn't left the back of the camera open or whatever and stick them on bits of paper and show them, do a kind of show and tell in the advertising agency. But I would have no contact with them for two weeks. That's unheard of to me. <laughs> I love it. So, okay, so where does this, where does this interest to, to go and, and, and to create, where does this come from? What, is, what does child, Alex, where does, this, where does this originate from? I always wanted to be an explorer. I w- was brought up on um, stories of the 19th, 19th century ex- British explorers and French explorers and mountaineers, and that was always what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to climb Everest, and I wanted to go into the Amazon and, and discover undiscovered tribes. And I, I, that was my, my desire. Which is essentially evolved into the world of production, which gives you a close enough footstep. Which, which kind, of, kind of worked pretty well. Um, un, unaccountably, it worked. And the other, the other thing that I've really enjoyed, and I think I, it was something I wanted as a, as a child but never really understood, was meeting people. I mean, I, I do like meeting people, and I've been incredibly privileged to meet such a weird and wide variety of people. And, and it's a bit like landscapes in that the thing about working in the film industry is you sit. Quite often when you're filming, you sit in a place for days and days, and it's not something you would do in normal life. I mean, I've sat in a, in a valley in Scotland when we were shooting something for Sprint, and I was there for like, 10 days and I didn't move and I in this valley and there was nothing there but we were building a set and filming but you know and I watched the la- the landscape change and the weather come in and at the same time I'm talking to the local sheep farmers and the people who live around there and and that is something I I think has been a huge privilege and something that's quite rare these days it's the it's the truest of experiences to see other people in different places, different cultures. It 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 widens your mind in a way that I wish most of my family in Southern Illinois had the opportunity to go do. I think so. Uh, the thing about production and also about location manager, particularly location managing, is you're there trying to get people to do things for you that they may not necessarily want to do. I mean, getting a film crew, allowing a film crew into your house. And, and that, these days, you just go to a, a location library online and you say, okay, I want a kitchen. It has to look like this. And there'll be people who put their houses up for filming. When I started, you'd have to go knock, knock on people's doors randomly in London and say, hi, I'm a film location manager. We'd like to film, we might like to film in your house. Can I come in and take photographs? And you had to gain people's trust that they would let you in and take a photograph of their house. But you'd also say to them, oh, and... 
obviously we're going to pay you a thousand pounds a day for filming. And they go, oh, this is wonderful. And then you say, but you do know there's going to be 70 people standing in your kitchen and we're going to paint it green and we're going to take everything out and put it in the garden. And, and 69 of those people are going to absolutely ignore you and not care the fact that it's your house, but I'm going to be there to look after you and the house as much as I can. And there's that kind of slight salesman thing, but it means you have to get involved. You have to get involved with everybody around you. And the role of a location manager is to is kind of protecting the bubble of a film crew, um, w- which forces you into a lot of weird situations. I feel like the location manager is one of the first, one of the most prominent roles I see cut out of at least the tier of budgets that we tend to work into, where people are like, oh, you don't need a location manager. And there's that middle ground between this, the role of the scout and then the role of the producers. But the truth is, the location manager is, is, is integral because it keeps people happy. It's, it's a great, you know, leave, leave it as you walked in uh, assurance factor for, for budget reasons. But I feel like the location manager, especially on, you know, small town shoots here in the U S like is, is, is pivotal because it's a person who can connect and has relationships that extend beyond the one day that 70 people are inside of somebody's kitchen. I feel like it's, it's something that I, I hate the idea of not having now, but I also know that that's an evolved principle. Like I, I start shooting and you're just a, you're a camera person and then you add sound, and then you start to grow, and you have producers, and you have Grip and Electric, and, you know, it, the location manager is beautiful. So, okay, what have you seen change the most in your day-to-day? I guess, are you, are you returning to travel jobs? Are you, how, is, how is production working these days for you? Well, sadly, there's, there's a lot less travel in what I, I mean, I work, as you know, I work in France, but I work in England these days as well. So I just go backwards and forwards, but but I mean nobody calls me up to go and find them deserts anymore. I don't really position myself as that either, uh, because it's not a job that exists apart from big feature films. I mean, I think if you're working with Bond, yeah, then then you travel. But but for the rest of us poor mortals, uh, we stay at home. What I do these days is I. Um, which is not remotely answering your question, but I, I make films for NGOs. Uh, so that's, it's a li- not exactly an excuse to travel, but I make little sort of doc- documentaries um, content for NGOs, which means that I travel, but not quite on the same basis. Well, that segues directly into Alex, the creator, uh, ah, which, which, is, which is great because one of the questions I have too is, you know, not only how is production working for you these days, but what are you doing these days? And I, I think that your work with NGOs is fascinating. So mm. to tell, tell the audience, as it were, uh, what kind of films do you produce and what, what motivates you in who you seek or who seeks you? Um, the sort of films I'm making is short form. I mean, I'm, I, I really don't, I'm not a great filmmaker. I, I'm happy to admit I'm, I'm, a, I'm an enthusiastic, but, but I'm, I'm not a great auteur. Um, however, what I do is... I leverage a little bit of my experience with digital strategy running the agency, and I help NGOs, I try and help NGOs communicate more effectively, um, particularly small NGOs. So I worked in Sierra Leone for an American, American NGO who called Muddy Lotus, who have a little school where they try and get kids to stay in school and not, not go and work in the 
in the illegal gold fields. I am, there's that picture just behind me, um, which was a film that I made with Kenyan street kids um, on the Uganda border, uh, which I lucky enough to get a couple of awards for. Kids who completely abandoned by their family, by society, and they end up, most of them hooked on glue. Um, what else did I do? And then I was in Nepal helping Oxfam. And most recently, I was in the Bekaa Valley on the Syrian, uh, Syrian Lebanese border, filming with with Syrian refugees who've been there ten years in the big refugee camps there. And it feeds very much into my the thing I was talking about before is of of enjoying spending time with people and 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 a deep curiosity I have about people and a kind of desire that other people understand. Uh, people's stories and see people for who they are and the individuals they are rather than just thinking street kids, refugees, um, illegal minor kids, uh, brats, uh, thieves. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested by, by telling those stories and telling those stories as well as I can with the, with the very small means that I've had. Uh, in the films that I've made, but um, it, it's it's quite important to me. I work with refugees a bit in Paris as well. It's interesting, I think, for for people on on my side of the world, um, unfamiliar with the amount of different pathways that lead to Europe, and the amount of people who find themselves throughout continental and elements of Europe. You know, there's there's so many different people groups who are displaced, who are seeking um, that can. You know, you can draw a comparison to what's happening in South America and Central America, going into the U.S. at the border. But it's it's again, it's it's everyone in, in a in a in a contained vacuum can talk about it out their nose. But when you see people, it's different. So, so one question I had written down earlier, just listening to you talk, was about that people effect. You know, what is the effect? Do you think, in your own experiences for others, like what is the thing that happens when you sit and you eat with somebody else in a place that's entirely foreign to you? What are those experiences and why are they important? I, I think they're important because you, you find common ground um, and you, you, the otherness of that person disappears. Whenever it was three months ago, I was sitting in this refugee camp uh, in Lebanon and the film that I really wanted to make was, was, was a kind of, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it was a, ha- a happy film in the sense that you're showing we were filming a woman with her kids. She's got five kids. Uh, husband disappeared, was died a few years ago, and she's bringing these five kids up by herself. And what I wanted to show in the film was, was, was how much we all share. Anybody who's ever had kids, I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same hopes, fears, desires, uh, wanting, wanting the best for your kids, enjoying their company. And I think it's so important in, in a world that, that's increasingly polarized uh, and people are increasingly closed in their view of others, that others now has a big O in the front of it and, and, and a kind of pervading meanness in society as, as resources become scarcer. And it's only by seeing people as they are, as individuals, that you can get beyond that. The, the word that always comes to mind is them, when I hear people use the, the term them, Completely. it usually puts bristles on my shoulders because I know that, okay, we're going there now. We're now, now we're, 
we're going to conglomerate a group of people and we're going to have a discussion about a removed object with no personality and no no individual experience. Because as you talk about, you know, that version of advertising, right? Like a Syrian refugee, but from a happy perspective, you know, you think about the fatigue that happens over over decades of of guilt cycled advertising, where you're you're trying to motivate people through sadness. Mm, that's exactly and, what I was what I was trying to avoid because I mean it's it it's such an easy approach. Oh my God, poor kids, crying children, crying mothers. I mean, and it's it's awful. And you're there, and it's awful, and it's unbelievable the the, the struggles that these people are, are surviving. And my God, we're worrying about. Uh, about trifles back in the West, but these guys are getting through it, and they and then but there's still happiness within their lives. I mean, human beings are extraordinarily resilient, but uh, but yeah, grief fatigue is, is is a big problem. It's intriguing to me that as we live in this era of mass connectivity, of TikToks and of Instagrams, and all of this influx of you know scary algorithm based platforms, the fact that we haven't been able to more quickly connect people to those those ideas in a meaningful way perplexes me. I, I, I guess I just, you think with all of these tools, oh. we would be able to find people in a place. But I, I wonder, I guess for me, I wonder, is it is the challenge for people around the world how to process all of that and how, how to go about living their life and worrying about their yard while also caring genuinely about Syrian refugees you know, uh, in your mind, what do you think? This is a huge existential question. I'm sorry. But what do you, what do you think the real challenge is for people right now? Because I agree, we have a human problem. We have a problem with people no longer seeing humans and seeing our species and individuals, but categorical topics. So what, what do you think people struggle with the most that prevents them from empathizing and sympathizing the way that we hope they would? Oh God. <clears throat> I, Two sentences, please. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I have, I don't know. I mean, I think there are moments I think we're a profoundly selfish species and other moments that, that one is blown away by other people's generosity and kindness and selflessness. You know, we are, we're faced, in my humble opinion, by, a, by, a, by the existential crisis of climate change, which will wipe out any, any worries about Literacy. I mean, it, it's it's so it's so huge that that it's like the film "Don't Look Up." I mean, it's just unthinkable. I think people are scared to care. I think I think mm. it's I think it's too challenging to care. And I, you know, I find um, in my experience of lots of different people in the world, I think that people who have a lot tend to be much nastier than people who have very little and so much more generous i think when you have to when you're challenged by your circumstances you find you often find more kindness and generosity than when you're rolling in abundance and you're terrified of losing that abundance i would agree with that i i think there's a really fantastic book i read recently called how to die in space by uh Dr. Paul Sutter. And it's a very fantastic look at just how crazy it is beyond our atmosphere, how difficult it is, how improbable it is to survive beyond the confinement of our pale blue dot. And in that just infinitesimally large galaxy, how really precious our species is. And you know that whole the globe, the, the globe phenomenon, the earth phenomenon that you have 
that apparently people have. I haven't had it. I've never been to space. Um, but people have having that that atmospheric look, you know, at, at the world makes you realize how fragile we are. And uh, you, when you say scared, that word resonates with me because obviously, well, two things. First off, I've talked to people around me. Uh, climate change is not real. They've reassured me. Um, some people in Missouri have said it doesn't exist. So I, I guess they're right. <laughs> That's where I live. That's my state of mind. Um, I, I find it infuriating here that I, I, I live in a piece of the country that really is fighting the truths of the world. You know, where, where things are so politicized that the conversation of the world is heading into an irreversibly bad place is more about party lines than it is, how do we fix this? That's just the last four years, five years have been really, really, the polarization is in my face every day. But I struggle with that. But the second part is I think it's scary because people don't know how to connect the dots. You know, like if I go down this series of thoughts, I feel small and vulnerable. Mm. And I, I feel like it's such a primate thing for us to, to kind of go back into this place of like, well, where do I not feel those things? And I look at that group aggregate behavior, especially in the US in the last five years. And I look at how these people groups have have really become binary in, in terms of their complete polarization on topics. And it's, it's I, I, I seek the kind of stuff you're seeking to make. Those are the pieces that, as a person, I want to watch. I want to be reminded that the Syrian children are children like my own children, mm. and that they too exist. I can't come to terms with what to do. I can't fix the problem. But if I empathize with the people, maybe I open a pathway to better understanding ways to fix the problem on a human scale. I don't know. I, I think you're right. And I don't think it, it, it's not necessarily giving them $5 or $10 or whatever it is. I think... The first step is giving them back dignity and respect and saying, yeah, you exist and I see you and I, and I, I understand you and I empathize with you and I care about you and then maybe, you know, let's do something about it. But I, I think, it's, I think a, lo- a lot of people, a lot of people that I talk to um, in Syria or in Lebanon, a lot of Syrians I talked to, it was, it was a lot about that. It was a but well, I just don't exist anymore. Um, I've got nothing. So, I'm, but I want to tell you my story. Now, the big segue here is, is back into the other part of our world, back into production. Now, I, I would argue that for me, the pieces of you that are 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 the fabric of your being that that instill in you this interest in telling stories about people to humanize them are the same principles that make you a good producer and that are make you a good location fixer. Because you're coming at every problem, which you hit at earlier, you're a problem solver. You're solving problems from a human perspective, backed by the need of a production. I know that's a big stretch to try to, to make what we do a big ethical thing, but I, I think that there's value in that. I mean, I would like to think that. I would like to think that I approach problems from a humanistic point of view and that it, that it works for me and that, that I'm, you know, if I'm good at my job in any way, it's because when I look at people and when I talk to people, they, I mean, very basically think that I'm a okay kind of guy and, and that, 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 that I kind of get them, that I'm not there saying, you've got to move your bloody car because Tom Cruise is coming or we're a film company and therefore, you know, frankly, madam, out of here. Um, 
which sometimes leads me to Stockholm syndrome, um, where I find myself uh, sympathizing rather more than I should with the uh, with whoever I'm having to deal with. Uh, but by about three o'clock in the morning, when you're still filming and the light's still on and the generator's still going and there's still 25 people in the street chatting because film crews chat and somebody's trying to go to sleep. You know, I get that. And I have a kind of weakness to say, you know what, maybe we need to go. But obviously that's the wrong wrong point of view to have in a, in a production point of view. It's, it's wrong in the sense that people tell us it's wrong, but I, I, I find it quite right. Like you have to balance out the needs of both, right? We had this happen a couple of weeks ago. We were filming here in St. Louis and Matt was down EPing on the job. And uh, we were wrapping, I think 1130-ish in a small piece of a neighborhood that really isn't familiar with production. Mm-hmm. And St. Louis has no permitting structure. So there's really no, there's no, there's no film commission. There's a film commission, but not really. And there's no, uh, there's no procedure. And so because of that, really as a production company in St. Louis, you can, you can set the rules and that's good and bad, right? Hmm. It's great. It's great for the freedom and flexibility. It's bad for creating a precedent for people in neighborhoods to feel comfortable with operations happening in their neighborhood. But we had an instance where we had control of two houses. The third house was a variable not our, not our control. And at the end of the night, you know, the lady in the house was, was mad. She was frustrated. She, we weren't on her property, but we were adjacent to her and we were, we were loud. There was a generator, there was crew, G&E's pulling lights. We have dogs on set. Mm. And the first couple of times she was enthusiastic. Then she was frustrated. Then she was angry. And, you know, you deal with those emotions, right? But the icing and the cake was poor Matt. We're wrapping the day. Matt's got the last bag of trash and in a very Matt Richmond move, went on the wrong side of the house into the wrong yard <laughs> and, and triggered a, a nest alarm. And I'm sitting in front of the house and this lady comes out just screaming, just screaming, screaming, screaming. And I think about a younger me would have met that energy and tried to combat the energy and tried to be like, well, we have a right to be here and we have a permit and we have these oh. different things or whatever, Right. But I get older and I recognize she's just tired. And I, my, my position now is to, is to receive that. And so when she's saying, get out of my yard, it's who is in your yard? There should be nobody in your yard. That's, that's ridiculous. Mm. You tell me how I can help you. And when you find that, that platform mm. to deescalate, it's like you kind of regain that, that human component. And the fight or flight response starts to, to dwindle Completely. and you get things done. I, I feel like that's something that when I when I work with like young producers who are like, how do you get good at producing? Just be human. Don't be an asshole. Exactly. You got to have an edge. And I, I've seen you work. Your work is fantastic in terms of how you approach the footprint necessary for a crew to function, right? Like in this entire conversation, and this is my mind, we haven't talked about Marseille, Siatet, Cassis, anything, right? It's having watched, to those of you who are listening, having watched Alex work, I will say to you this day, the best catering experience, the best on-set food I've ever had in my entire life in 37 years on this planet is, is, is that your recommendation in your, in your design? Um, are, they, are they still in business? Oh, yeah. I'm like, I got to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, is ironic because all of these dots are connecting for me. What led me to Marseille and to Cassis is Google. In the same way of going to the bookstore and finding Red Desert, 
I knew that Purina needed something that didn't feel like the English Channel um, in December. And the closest thing I could find that made sense from a, what I then knew mentality is Marseille. And that ultimately brought us together um, to the best experience. It was a great job. What a fun time. Mm-hmm. I, those are what I crave. And I, I, I feel the same amount of, uh, I wish there was more location work happening. And so much of it is because of the gig economy and because of the internet, now you can just hire a crew, get the footage back. Yeah. Get a, get a director on Zoom. Who needs to be there? Yeah. I mean, that's something that, talking about things that have changed. I did a, did a job last year, I guess last year, where the agency was in LA, the director was in London, and we were shooting outside Paris. And so I had, I had a pair of headphones on. I was on WhatsApp, I think, with the director. The, there was a, a part of the local client were there on, on a Skype call. And it was just, I mean, it was just so complicated. And they, obviously, the director was watching the, the footage live streamed back to her. And the awful thing was, it kind of worked. I mean, it wasn't very good. It was a, it was a lousy commercial, but, but for, for, it was never going to be great. Had she been there, it wouldn't have been any better. But, but I mean, it, it worked and nobody moved. Is that a good thing? You know, less transport, less business class tickets across the Atlantic, less hotels, less driving around. I don't know. There's a fascination, right, with us identifying something as good or bad. Yeah. And maybe it's neither. Maybe it's just a thing. Maybe it's just what it is. Yeah, exactly. And the question is, how can you best practice that? How can you intentionally operate? That's my goal with with a company, with retrievers. Like, how do we, how do we just not not make shit worse than it was prior to whatever we've done? <laughs> That's all I want to do. Uh, before we move into our close of our episode, uh, I do want to ask: Is there anything that you want to highlight or or call out that we can we can link to, or things you're working on, or things that matter to you right now? Uh, not really. I mean, I, we've, we've, it's been, a, it's been a fairly wide ranging conversation, which has been great. Um, no, I think I, I think I'm good. I mean, you know, my, my kind of thoughts for the future, I'm going to carry on doing, doing what I'm doing. And, um, I hope, hope we get to work together at some point in the future. Absolutely. Cause it, it was a great job. It was a really nice job. Matt and I talk about you a lot, so we're we're in that process of we're always thinking. I like to think of myself as a high rev Ducati engine in neutral, <laughs> and I'm just waiting to drop into first at all times. Um, that's the life. So, okay, I I have prepped you on this somewhat, but what I want you to do for me, Alex, is just describe the sound of something that matters to you, either a moment in life, maybe a bizarre, whatever it is. Describe for me, because then Dane will create the audio soundscape as best he is able. Um, describe for me the sounds of peace of the world or a memory that, that is important to you. Uh, I've got a house in the middle of France, which is an old, ancient farmhouse um, that I bought about 30 years ago when I was just a small child. Um, and I, I rebuilt it myself with my own little two hands and it's really my go-to place. I don't go there often enough, but it's my go-to place, and it's the place that I feel calmest and most at home. And the sound is, it's surrounded by trees, by big old oak trees and chestnut trees, and the, 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 the sound 
is of crows in the trees um, and wind, wind through the trees because it's quite windy there. That's lovely. Have fun, Dane. <laughs> and it has to be source. It has to be, they have to be French crows. Yeah. <laughs> well, Alex, uh, you can do, thank you. With pigeons as well. Wood oh. pigeons. Pigeons are acceptable. Okay. It just depends on the sound library. Uh, people keep pe- people keep on referencing like uh, music, and we're like, oh god, let's try to license that. We'll see how that goes. Uh, well, well, thank you, Alex. Uh, that wraps up this episode of Hey Retriever, a podcast about whatever the literal hell this is about. I don't know yet, <laughs> but I love it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, my friend. And that's that. Mm-hmm.